Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I didn't actually get to see a lot. Uh, I'm still getting things moved into uh, Popcorn Junkie Studios. Uh, I should be having a um, sound dampener, some sound dampening stuff uh, coming in by next week. Uh, episode, but uh, for this week I did manage to see the um, final release of My Spy, the uh, Dave Bautista action comedy, uh, Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, the latest Will Ferrell movie that got dumped to Netflix, as well as revisiting uh, The Great Mouse Detective and The Jungle Book uh, with my family. Uh, so we're, I'm going to talk about them real quick. Uh, so yeah, let's get started. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. So yeah, I haven't been able to catch up on like... There's been some interesting stuff being released uh, direct to streaming. Like um, like that uh, Pete Davidson movie came out. Uh, there's a new Blumhouse movie that's out. There's uh, John Stewart released a new movie uh, with Steve Carell. That's all about like um, big uh, Washington, D.C., big level politics eking its way into a mayoral campaign. Uh, that I want to check out, but a lot of that stuff is, you have to pay for, so uh, I'm missing a lot of uh, stuff because I don't have the money for it, but I did finally watch um, My Spy, which was which was released in Can- on Canadian Amazon first. I don't know if it was on any other ones first, but it was initially released, on, I saw it being reviewed um, by people who have Canadian Amazon Prime, and it just this week finally got released to Amazon Prime here in the U.S. And I'll say this, it was not as bad as I was expecting. Like, whereas I was expecting to enjoy the Lovebirds and got got a underwritten pile of, you know, nothingness, here I expected garbage and got something that was not quite garbage. Uh, so, yeah, the, the premise here is the, um, usual trope of the action hero babysitter, essentially. It's, you know, the same thing you see with, like, Suburban Commando, and the Pacifier, and the Game Plan, and, you know, all of these usual... We just had, um, uh, Playing With Fire, uh, last November. So, I mean, this, this has just been a constant thing. Hey, let's get this big, tough action hero actor and pair him with a bunch of little kids. Uh, only here, it's not so much because it's much more an emphasis on the spy comedy with Bautista being an ex-Marine who is not very good at espionage because he's more wanting to be the soldier action hero and he's not great at actually, you know, bringing in uh, uh, suspects or anything like that or getting intel so he's basically furloughed not furloughed um he's uh, demoted uh to surveillance duty with Kristen Shaw who is essentially playing Louise Belcher uh her role her character is essentially like really wants to be in the field and be tough and show what she's got and she and because it's 
because Louise is basically her regular voice, uh, it's so much of her dialogue feels like it's coming from Louise Belcher, which is a fun visual to imagine. Big Dave Bautista hanging out with Louise Belcher. Um, but it's... But then, yeah, the most, the biggest part of the story is the fact that they're found out by this little nine-year-old kid or whatever, um, who I don't really know. Um, her name didn't, uh, Chloe Coleman is the actress, and I never really heard of her. Apparently she was in Big Little Lies. She's in a bunch of stuff for um, Amazon Prime, like Upload and uh, what was the other thing I saw she was doing? Oh, God, she's going to be in Avatar 2. Oh, boy. Um, I mean, what's this one? Oh, a Disney Plus thing called Timmy Failure Mistakes Were Made she was in. Uh, but she was the big thing seems to be Big Little Lies and, yeah, other other just minor roles before that Henry Danger she showed up at one point and then yeah this Big Little Eye seemed to be her big like break and then My Spy seemed to be her biggest like role to date but she's gonna be she's in that new uh series for Amazon Prime upload that I've been meaning to check out I'm hoping to check that out with um with um the other ones too, uh, the boys and there's a bunch of Amazon original shows I've been meaning to check out, but um, but yeah, she seems to be on the rise. Uh, she's also going to be in the New Warriors, uh, which is a Marvel show. Oh, I thought wait, I thought it said Chloe Bennett, and I thought oh hey they're going to get uh Chloe Bennett to return as Quake. Um, but no, um, ooh Keith David's going to be in it though. Uh, it's just some new Marvel show, um, probably for, uh, Disney Plus or something, but yeah, um, anyway, she's fine, like, she's not terrible, but she's also, like, you know, doing the precocious little kid role, so I mean, like, sometimes she's able to hold her own with Bautista, but a lot of times she's just stuck doing the usual crap. Dave Bautista, too, he's stuck, when he's able to be charming and charismatic and be his usual, like, you know, self, he's fine. But when he's having to deliver this really lame dialogue, he's hindered by it. And I think uh, the only reason he gets away with it is because he's, A, charming enough to overcome a lot of the lame dialogue and, br and bring some heart to it. Unlike Cena or The Rock or a lot of these other wrestlers. Dave Bautista, honestly, is probably the best wrestler turned actor. Better than The Rock. The Rock is a great, like, action hero star, but Bautista is an act, I feel like, is the best actor to come from it, because he's not, he's actually disappears into Drax or um, whatever his character was from Blade Runner. You know, you don't, you don't see Dave Bautista anymore. You see that character now. So, yeah, I think he he makes up for a lot of it. But at the same point, like, so much of this is... And it's been delayed and delayed and delayed. And then the COVID hit. And then this was um, picked up by Amazon. But then it didn't get released until until now for some reason. So, yeah. Um, it, it's, got, it's not terrible. It's a fairly decent spy movie. Um... 
like the act there's a great sequence in the beginning set to like this uh opera and during the slow down bits they slow the visuals down so there's some really kinetic stuff like that the action uh choreography and filming is pretty decent but um but yeah the whole thing like oh uh, this girl now wants wants this spy to be her new dad essentially and you got to hook up with my mom and then I mean the kid is brutal like She's willing to um to, to take out a goldfish because she knows it'll get her past Batista, and then you know there's the dead you know where she um, openly mocks him. <laughs> but um yeah, but so yeah, so yeah, there's bits where uh, the actress shines, but so much of it is just the usual kid stuff like oh aren't gee golly gosh i'm just a precocious little kid in over my head <laughs> and uh then there are some points where it's just like oh my god this this is like you give her like if it, like she is louise belcher essentially <laughs> oh my god um but yeah aside from that there's like this really really poorly written stereotypical gay couple like there's the really flamboyant one who's written with a um like a quiet one who almost like doesn't even talk but then the flamboyant one is just constantly talking and it's like eh, eh, i don't know like it feels like you know you can't deny that pe- yeah, flamboyant people don't exist like you can't but i feel like every single time i see another flamboyant gay character it's like they're digging into that well again it's like the only stereotype they it's like the only thing they know about gay guys is that sometimes they can be flamboyant i don't know um but yeah it's they then of course there's the whole liar revealed thing that happens eventually and the climax is pretty solid um there's a big there's a cute twist at the end uh uh of the walking away from explosions trope but for the most part, this is just a fairly weak spy comedy, and the kids still... And yeah, this trope of the action hero uh, babysitter just does not work for me. I don't think I've ever liked it. Even as a kid, I never liked it. I always thought it was lame. It's like, I don't watch the action hero to babysit the kid. I watch the action hero to be the action hero. I don't care about them with the kid. I don't want to see my... It's like when they try to add kid characters to a property because they think oh they need somebody to identify with no we identify with the heroes we don't care if there's another kid there because we're not identifying as the kids we're identifying as the interesting people please stop pairing you know (laughs) unless you're gonna go for like the lay on the professional thing and it's and it's a badass who uh, is protecting uh, protecting somebody, protecting a kid or something, then I have no interest in action heroes being babysitter and being asked to do, like, household chores and doing, you know, doing, th- and, you know, being, trying to, uh, trying to hook up with mom. And I, I don't care. Please make it stop. Uh, you know who else we need to make stop? Will Ferrell. Yeah, he's at it again. This time with Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. There's a title for you. Uh, apparently, in the ni- in the late nineties, like ninety eight or ninety nine, uh, Will Ferrell's wife, who he's been married to since two thousand, um, introduced him to the Eurovision Song Contest. And I've been meaning to watch Eurovision. Sadly, this year, uh, Eurovision got canceled because of the Rona. The and uh, and the Backstreet Boys concert tour took over the Eurovision contest song contest. 
podcast. Oh, that's beautiful. That, that's that's a great way to put it. But um, but yeah, it, this is just yet. Yeah, this is I think this is even worse than the other Will Ferrell kind of movies where you know Will Ferrell. This is the director, um, David Dobkins, I believe his name is. He's the guy who did Shanghai Nights, Wedding Crashers, and Fred Claus. Uh, so that's the kind of comedy he's known for. Wedding Pressures is fairly solid, and Shanghai Nights isn't terrible, but he's not known... He's not attached to great stuff. He's more of a producer. But, um... But, yeah, this is... Hey, you know uh, Will Ferrell's other movies, like Talladega Nights, or, um... Uh, uh, Anchorman... Or the Anchorman sequel, or that Sherlock Holmes movie he did? Yeah, it's that level of comedy... Only some only it's somehow worse because he's not as into it. Like with those other ones, he's going going all the way stupid with it, and it's painful to watch. Here, it's so unbelievably boring. This is a complete waste of your time. Like the the whole thing with him and Rachel McAdams is no, there's no chemistry there. They they feel like they're just being they're just, they feel like they're there by obli- out of obligation. More than anything, um, there's a Demi Lovato uh, character who pops in and in in out of the movie who's who's completely wasted. There's this whole there's Dan Stevens who feels completely wasted. There's a whole sequence featuring actual Eurovision contestants that's just there because it's this whole thing. Like the premise of the movie is Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams are this song duo, Fire Saga. And Pierce Brosnan, who, despite being 15 years older than Will Ferrell, is supposed to be his dad, uh, is, is, you know, finds Will Ferrell a disappointment because he's such a man-child. But out of sheer, sheer dumb luck, uh, Fire Saga ended up in Eurovision uh, on a technicality, you know. They're the they're the winners by they're they're the winners for Iceland by default. Woohoo! Default! The two greatest words in the English language. Default, default, default. But um they end up being representing Iceland in the Euro in Eurovision, and they have to go up against um Dan Stevens, who's a Russian singer, and um, you know, so you've got a Greek singer who's the main kind of the main antagonist. The main antagonists are mainly there as love romantic antagonists. Like Dan Stevens keeps hitting on um, Rachel McAdams while uh, Will Ferrell has to deal with uh, I don't know her name. She's a Greek. She's a Greek actress, but I don't remember her name off the top of my head. Let me pull it up. Um, Mel- Melisanti Mahut, I think is how you pronounce it. She is a, she p- did the voice of Cassandra in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. A uh, lot of Greek stuff. She's mainly Greek, but uh, she was the voice. She did voice talent for Assassin's Creed Origin as well, and she's Cassandra, whoever that is, in um, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and she plays the Greek singer. Um, when was it? Like I don't remember anything, uh, barely. Mita Zina, Zina, Mita Zanakis, uh, with an X. And yeah, it, it this is so like Graham Norton's in it and he may as well just be, you know, 
passing by on a before you know like his he missed his flight or something and they had him for a day it's really he's he, you barely miss him in the movie he might as well not be in it so like graham norton who's a fairly good interviewer is the host of eurovision and bleh, he like may as well not even be in the movie he's so barely he barely like makes an impression but um yeah, the main, the big thing I get from this is like, why is anybody here? Like, who cares? None of the, the jokes aren't funny. The music is fine. Like, the music is not terrible, but it's like a really. It feels like a weak year at Eurovision. Like, Eurovision is so over the top and crazy, and the songs here feel like a bad year at Eurovision, honestly. And then the whole movie itself is bland and predictable. Like, if you've seen, if you, like, if I told you Rachel McAdams and Will Ferrell are the, are the romantic leads, but there's antagonistic uh, rivals there, what do you think is going to happen by the end? Like, it's not interesting, it doesn't follow an interesting plot at all. It's really underwhelmingly underwritten. It's one because it's another improv-driven uh, comedy, and I'm sick of this garbage because it doesn't. It's not good. <laughs> the best things I watched this week were not even from this year. <laughs> they were all rewatches from Disney Plus. So yeah, I would not even bother checking out Eurovision Songcast. Go watch actual Eurovision. It's way more interesting. This is like when um, Battle of the Year got its own movie. And it's lame and boring and made me made you not interested to ch- check out the actual better, more interesting Battle of the Year competition. Uh, for those who don't know, um, Battle of the Year is a um, b-boy. I think that's what it's referred. I think that's the style. It's a it's a it's a breakdancing competition, and they made a movie centered around Battle of the, the Battle of the Year. And it sucks. It's absolute garbage, and you should never watch it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, anyway, yeah, I watched two movies on Disney Plus. The first one was The Great Mouse Detective. Um, I forget what brought it up, um, but my nephew mentions he had never seen it. I think we were watching something on YouTube, and it came up, and I was, and he was like, "I never saw it." Oh, you had never seen it? Well, then, to Disney Plus, and uh, some things I noticed this time around. Um, Alan Young, who was the for the longest time was the voice actor of Scrooge McDuck, is the dad. I had never noticed. Uh, Vincent Price is phenomenal. You know that he's as always. Apparently, he had always wanted to be in a Disney movie, and it wasn't until The Great Mouth Detective that they finally brought him in, and he is fantastic as the over the top um, uh, villain Radigan. Um, the voice of the Sultan from Aladdin. It has been working with Disney for a while because he was also the voice of Dawson here, so he's been working with Disney for a hot t- for a hot second there. Um, super charming, really beautiful uh, animation holds up really well. Um, there is one bit uh, that it's like flash for a second in that it's um, Basil's introduction. He's wearing this really stereotypical like Asian costume. Uh, they don't go full, like, yellow face with it. Uh, it's a white mouse with, like, derpy eyes. Um, but it's the, he comes in wearing this whole costume, and it's like, what the hell is this all about? Like, what what's happening? And then it's never mentioned or, you know, uh, uh, seen again. Like, what the hell was that? Um, Basil is good. 
He's got a very interesting arc where he's so up in his own head about so many things that when he is met with um, emotionality, when he's met with uh, having to be empathetic to Dawson after they lose the girl and he's has to deal with his own failure that he over that it ultimately he overcome like by the end of the movie he's actually sad to see Dawson go because he's actually seen this man who he had just met a few days ago as a friend of his and so he brings Dawson on and so in a you know a quick you know brush of dialogue he essentially tells Dawson that he wants him on as a partner and it's really cute and charming. Uh, also, the Rube Goldberg death machine that uh, Radigan comes up with is, is beautifully crazy. And I love how he gets out of it. Um, uh, also, let's not forget the Let Me Be Good to You scene, which was almost removed from the movie because it was seen as too racy. Uh, yeah, that was Disney trying to get away with that PG rating as far as, as much as they could. Um but it makes sense. I mean, like they're in a seedy bar, and then some this, uh, you know, you know, um, sexy dancer shows up, and uh, it, it's you know, it's appealing to the to the to the you know downtrodden masses. It's these you know, it's a dirty it's a dirty bar, and it's uh, and so they get these and they get these showgirls to essentially dance for them. So it's a it's a fun scene. Plus, it's a great song. Um, really well uh, uh, performed, well sung and executed. Because first it starts out with this little mouse, you know, little <laughs> demure mouse girl singing it, and then uh, it starts to da 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 da. I don't know if the, if the songs all throughout the movie feel anachronistic because it's supposed to be like the 1890s, but it, the music kind of feels like it should almost be the 20s. Um, but yeah, it's it's still solid music. Uh, the the score too is phenomenal. Like, if you haven't yet, please go see the Great Mouse Detective. It is it holds up surprisingly well for not be, for being that just before the Disney Renaissance kicked in. Uh, this is actually the first use of CGI in a Disney movie, with the Clockworks and Big Ben being animated all in CG, and they hold up. You know, because they're not trying to make like anything too complicated. It's just background. A lot of that old Disney CGI holds up for the most part. Um, I also really dig at the end when Radigan uh, finally loses his cool. You don't hear Vincent Price's charismatic, um, dulcet tones anymore because he's just so animalistic now. He's lost everything and he finally loses his cool and becomes more rat-like. And it's really interesting to visually see, and and it's it, I dig it. I really dig this movie and how they handled it. Um, so yeah, if you haven't in a while, go check out the Great Mouse Detective. It, it holds up fairly well. Um, and then uh, just tonight, as, as of recording, Sunday the twenty eighth, um, my niece is staying over with the family, and she wanted to watch a movie. So we popped some popcorn in the air popper and turned on John Favreau's The Jungle Book. This is a movie that I liked when I first saw it. I enjoyed it even more the second time I saw it, and now I am I, I absolutely I am dig like this is a four and a half out of five star movie for me. The CG is, it holds up amazingly well, uh, even four years on. Like, it still hasn't, doesn't look dated yet. Um, 
and the and knowing the um, behind the scenes because they show little tidbits of the making of the Jungle Book um, and the Mandalorian Disney Gallery show. It, how Favreau made it is really interesting, and uh, if you get the chance, check out some of the behind-the-scenes stuff for the movie. It is next-level stuff uh, that Favreau is doing. Um, voice cast is still excellent. Idris Elba, Shere Khan, Lupita Nyong'o as Raksha, the mother wolf. Ben Kingsley as Bagheera. Bill Murray as Baloo the Bear is my second favorite after Phil Harris. Phil Harris is always going to be the perfect Baloo for me, but... Um, Bill Murray brings brings his you know special kind of um, his charm to the role. Uh, I I dig um, Christopher Walken as this more imposing villainous King Louis, whereas the initial King Louis created for the which was specifically created for the Disney movie in order to feature Louis Prima because I think they wanted to bring in Louis Prima for a role or something like that and they decided to make this orangutan who sings jazz music so they could bring in Louis Prima for the soundtrack or something. I don't know. I'll have to dig into the behind the scenes for that movie. But um, they've turned that into now this actual uh, genus. Gigantopithecus is an actual genus from like um, 300,000 to like almost 800,000 to a million years ago living in Southeast Asia so I mean, this is you know this he this is essentially saying this prehistoric ape managed to survive into the early days of Homo sapiens and is still hanging around in the ancient ruins of what what probably were um, a civilization at the time when he his when his species was more was 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 bigger and more around and more around and the way Walken plays it is really solid like you hear in the in the movie. He more like sing talks his way through um I wanna be like you. Like it's kind of, you know, villainous and snarling. And then in the credits you hear him sing it more jazzy and I'm the king of the swingers, oh the jungle VIP. I've reached the top and had to stop and that's what's bothering me. And so he sings it more tuneful. And it's re- and he's really solid at it, so I think he was a solid f- fit. Um, the only thing that I miss is that because it's a voice and not him, we don't get to see him dance because he's a solid dancer. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Shere Khan is the best I've seen the character. Idris Elba plays him so beautifully. I like Mowgli's arc. The idea that. Um, you know, he wants to stay in the jungle. He wants to stay in the jungle. And then when he's got to face Shere Khan, he goes to the man village. And then when he's given the choice to either fight him like a man or fight him like a, an animal in the jungle, he dips, he opts to go for the jungle because that's his home. He's not a man, like Shere Khan says. And then because he decides to side with the animals, they back him up against Shere Khan. And everything that Mowgli has done through the movie to gain the respect of like the elephants and the other animals, he it they he's finally become seen and accepted for who he is instead of this outcast. I really dig it. The kid's pretty solid. Like he's not amazing, but he is. You know, he kind he he's a natural fit for that little kid sort of character. And I think he's I think he's really solid. The one thing I still don't like is Scarlett Johansson as Ka. I used to not like that they made Ka female. I don't mind that Ka is female now at this point because I'm like, you know, a female Ka is not a bad fit. Like Ka, it, it could be either gender. It, it works either way. I my problem is still that I think ScarJo is not a good actress. 
like between this and the SpongeBob movie and all the things I've and all these things I keep seeing her pop up and like the one role I think she was fine in was her, and I think that's because she's not expected to really act. She's just expected to be a voice and and deliver lines essentially. You know, like. It's just, it may as well just be Scarlett Johansson being the voice. So it does, there's not a really character depth to that, uh, to her as the AI in her. Um, yeah, I, I think Scarlett Johansson, like I mentioned with The Rock, is a great star. Like, she's a great, she's a great persona to put up on the screen. Very old school. But she's not a good actor. Whereas you get someone like Idris Elba, Lupita Nyong'o, Kim Ben Kingsley, um, they are all acting. You know, Bill Murray's not really acting; he's just being Bill Murray as Baloo. You know, you see, you you see, you, there's a lot of Bill Murray's natural charisma in the character, whereas the other uh, uh, cast members are acting; they're giving a performance, and she is just not. I think she's only in there because she's friends with John Favreau. Like he's like, hey, want to be in my movie? And she's like, and sure. And yeah, it's I, I just don't think she's a good actress at all. But yeah, the movie itself I think is still the best of the live action remakes. You know, not a very high bar to cross, but it it, it just whoo, Favreau just just completely just dominates these live action remakes. I still think I still hold true that the the, the Lion King remake is not that bad. I think people are just just hated because it's more it because they prefer the original. I I for one do not pref, I do not one do not mind I do not care for that original movie. So I have no qualms in saying that the remake, in fact, it does does some things better and is on par with at least that original. That's just me though. <laughs> I'm not as beholden to it like so many people. I'm still gonna. I I will die on this hill. Lion King, the Lion King remake is not that bad. <laughs> what a hell to die on, goddammit. Anyway, um, no Patreon corner this week. Um, my patron Mar couldn't think of anything, which is fine because they've given me content for the last month, so they can give me something new down the line. Um. But once they come up with, because they're gonna have to come up with some new ideas of stuff that they'd want me to check out that I haven't seen already. So um, when they come up with something, or if a new patron pops in and has a suggestion for me, uh, we'll bring back the Patreon corner. So we'll see. Uh, but with that in mind, we'll take a quick break, uh, and when we come back, we're gonna be discussing the life and times of one Joel Schumacher. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Melody. I'm Max. I'm Dexter. I'm Diana. And I'm John. And together, we host the book review and discussion podcast, Living in the Stacks. Every two weeks, we take the time to read a book and then meet online to discuss it. We'll talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, and if we'd read the book again. Whatever the genre, whoever the author, whether it's good or bad, we'll read anything once. So if you want to join us, you can find us, Living in the Stacks, available through Gumby Cat Networks.
as many of you heard on June 22nd, the uh, director, Joel Schumacher, best known for St. Animal's Fire and the second half of the Batman quadrilogy from the 90s, uh, passed away. And so, and originally my plan was to watch his entire catalog, but because I had been moving stuff down to um, Popcorn Junkie Studios here in Stately Bailey Family Manor. Um, I hadn't really had the time to watch everything. So I managed, I kind of peeked through some of the trailers. I'm, you know, sitting through, kind of racking my brain for the stuff I did see, like A Time to Kill and the Batman movies and Fan with the Opera. Um, and I decided to more focus on, you know, his biography and take a look at his, you know, catalog as a whole, not through a reviewer's eyes, but through just a biographer's eyes sort of thing. So uh, let's get things rolling. Um, he was born August 29th, 1939 in New York City. His father was a Baptist from Knoxville, Tennessee, and his mom was of, of Swedish Jewish descent. And his father passed away from pneumonia at eight, when he was four. And then his mom raised him pretty much... I don't, it doesn't say that he had a stepfather or anything like that, so we're assuming probably single mom in the 40s raising him in Long Island City. And by age nine, he was already experimenting with LSD, meth, and, and drinking alcohol. Uh... So I'm not sure how good of a childhood he had if he was already getting access to them and trying them out. He was also uh, starting to experiment with sex at age 11. So he was already sexually active, like in his preteen, in like the early, like just before his pubescence really kicked in. Uh, or unless he blossomed early or something, I don't know. But yeah, he had a really he had a really crazy childhood. Um, he graduated. Uh, Parsons School of Design in 1965, and was a designer at Revlon in 1966. His and his mother died the year he graduated, so he talked about how that was kind of like his low point because he was 50. He ended up fifty thousand dollars in debt. He had been already lost multiple teeth due to the drug use, and he was he weighed 130 pounds. Um, so he was like that throughout the 60s, and then in 1970, he finally cleaned himself up from drugs and began working with the designer um, Henri Bendel in New York City. Um, he didn't start work in um, film uh, until 1972 with the, with the film Played As It Lays, which I wasn't familiar with. Um, Play It As It Lays... Here we go, 1972. It's an Anthony Perkins movie. Uh, Hollywood actress undergoes psychic breakdown and recalls the traumatic events that led to her stay at a sanitarium. Hmm. From Frank Perry. So, yeah, this movie was, like, his first real time as a designer, as a production designer. Because initially, like, and you'll, you'll, people have heard the story, he was essentially a window, um dresser for uh, Henri Bendel and uh, it wasn't until 1972 that he finally decided to go into film because he was inspired uh, to work in film uh, He wa as a kid he watched um, 
David Le- David Lean uh, adaptation of Great Expectations, and it really stuck out to him, and it's kind of what made him want to really get into film. And his way in was through design, because that's his forte. He was a designer. Um, as so, he started in 1972, and then he went on to do design for the movies I honestly never heard of. The Last of Sheila, Sleeper. Uh, this one I do know of. It's a Woody Allen movie called Sleeper. I think it's some sci-fi movie. Uh, Bloom in Love, Killer Bees. <laughs> There's a fun one. Uh, the Time of the Cuckoo, The Prisoner of Second Avenue, and Interiors. And he would be both a production designer and sometimes a costume designer. Um, it wasn't until 1974 that he active, that he went from design to screenwriting. And he started off as a screenwriter in terms of like filmmaking on the creative and outside of the design aspect. Um, his first movie was a TV movie based on the life of Virginia Hill, who I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was the mother of Bugsy Malone. Mother or wife? Let me see. Uh, Chicago Outfit Courier in the mid-30s. Girlfriend! Uh, I knew it was, uh, there was a tie to Bugsy Malone there. Um, so she was uh, the girlfriend for Bugsy Malone. And so um, Joel Schumacher's first uh, screenwriting and I think directing gig. Maybe, I don't think he directed until a bit later. Um, but Virginia Hill was his like first foray into that end of the creative spectrum in filmmaking. Uh, he went on to write Sparkle, which was inspired by Diana Ross and the Supremes. Uh, Car Wash, the uh, cult classic Car Wash, which featured Richard Pryor and um, a whole bunch of who all was in Car Wash. Like Car Wash is probably one of his one of the in terms of his oeuvre, uh, his most well received by critics. Uh, and he just was right was the, was the wrote the screenplay for it. Um, Franklin Ajay, uh, Bill Duke, George Carlin, Erwin Corey, Ivan Dixon, Antonio Fargus, Jack Kehoe, Clarence Muse, Lorraine Gary, Pointer Sisters, and Richard Pryor. Um, never seen it. I've heard good things, but yeah. Uh, he, he Joel Schumacher wrote Car Wash, for those who didn't know. Uh, he also went on to write um, The Wiz. So he wrote the screenplay for the adaptation of The Wiz. So, if you like The Wiz, that was written by Joel. Sh- the was adapted for the screen by Joel Schumacher. Uh, he did get his first directing gig in 1978 with the TV movie Amateur Night at the Dixie Bar and Grill, which was a TV movie about um, a talent show night at a at a rural uh, bar. Um, he went on to direct The Incredible Shrinking Woman, which I had heard of. Uh, it's a Lily Tomlin flop where, that was basically a comedic take on the shrinking person story. Um, as well as a DC Cab. Uh, DC Cab managed to make some money back, but it was both of them were critical flops. Nobody liked, nobody really dug them. Um, it wasn't until 1985 that he hit his real breakthrough with St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, which it, which you know was a massive success both with the theme song and the movie and then the movie spawned the Brat Pack. Uh, for those who remember, in the eighties there was a there was a group of actors. Um, well, I mean it was uh, yeah it was mainly a group because there was the Rat Pack, uh, which featured um, Dean Martin, uh, Frank Sinatra. 
um, Sammy Davis Jr., a whole bunch of these whole old crooners from the 50s. And so the Brat Pack were these young actors uh, in the 80s and early ni- up to the early 90s. Uh, Emilio, mainly Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Rob Lowe, Andrew McCarthy, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy. Uh, they, uh, Demi, Demi Moore was also one of the members of the Brat Pack um, through St. Elmo's Fire. Um, the St. Elmo's Fire and Breakfast Club were kind of the two movies that spawned the Brat Pack. And the main ones being, main ones being Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Rob Lowe, Andrew McCarthy, Demi Moore, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy. And so when they worked together in all of these movies, they were seen as the Brat Pack. Um, so yeah, Joel Schumacher is, you know, in, you know, kind of helped spawn, uh, you know, spawn this whole genre between him and John Hughes. Um, but also in that time, he he directed the movie The Lost Boys. So if you love The Lost Boys, that's a Joel Schumacher joint. Um, so yeah, those two saw massive success. And he went on to direct some fairly well-known movies. Um, let me pull up his his filmography here. Pretty extensive stuff, and stuff that a lot of people knew. Um, there was uh, here we go filmography. There was Flatliners, which just got remade. It was um, I've never seen the original yet. Uh, Falling Down, which was the movie featuring Michael Douglas as this uh, psycho uh, psycho um, uh, office worker who finally you know who um, who loses his his cool and starts killing people and breaking stuff um, as he walks through Los Angeles. I haven't seen it in a while. I don't know how it holds up. It's a very angry white boy movie. Um, he directed. Two, um, uh, two, uh, John Grisham adaptations, uh, The Client in 1994, and then he did A Time to Kill in 1996, so he, he saw, started to see some major success, uh, as a director following The Lost Boys in 87 and St. Elmo's Fire in 85, um, but then his most infamous uh, directorial gig happened when he was brought in to replace Tim Burton as the director for the Batman series in the ni- in 1995. Well, 94, I think. 93 or 94 is when he came in, would have come in. And he, he even he did not like his work on those. He admits that he kind of caved in to Warner Brothers demands to make the movies more toyetic they specifically wanted somebody to make the movies the movies that were easier to sell toys for because that was the biggest problem with burton was he was making movies that were too dark and they couldn't sell toys for movies that were giving kids nightmares so they wanted something colorful and candy coated, and he gave them exactly what they wanted, even so far as channeling 60s era Batman. And he himself is a Batman fan, and initially, when he was brought on, he wanted to adopt Frank Miller's Batman Year One. True story. If Joel Schumacher had more creative control, he would have been adapting Frank Miller's Year Batman Year One. 
crazy to think of Schumacher's Batman Year One, but we could have had it at one point if if uh, the studios weren't so toy driven. But even he admits that that was a mistake, and he had apologized for it because he even he doesn't like what happened there. Like he like he re- they think people think like he ruined it. No no no. He's just a conduit for the studios uh, to ruin Batman. There's a re- the the studios had wanted something to push toys, and Joel Schumacher was the poor sap who got saddled with the gig. So I don't I, I, t- I tend not to blame him for that anymore because yeah, what's more believable? Joel Schumacher single-handedly ruined Batman in the '90s, or was that Warner? Or do you think Warner Brothers, the people funding the movie, had more say in it? Yeah, um, after Bat- after leaving Batman, he went on to do um, Eight Millimeter, which I think was somewhat crit- well received. I don't rem- I've heard good things about it. Haven't seen it yet. Um, and then a lot of stuff I hadn't heard of: Gossip, Tigerland, Flawless. Haven't heard of any of these. Um, he did some stuff I had heard of, Bad Company, which was the movie featuring, um, Chris Rock and Anthony Hopkins, back when Chris Rock tried to have an acting career, uh, as well as Phone Booth, which is, I've heard good things about, so if you've seen the movie Phone Booth and you like it, that's the one where, um, it's a thriller set mostly around a guy at a payphone, um, uh, Colin Farrell, uh, that was a Joel Schumacher directing gig, uh, and then, of course, in 2004, he directed the infamous Phantom of the Opera adaptation. He was the one and only choice by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Andrew Lloyd Webber specifically wanted Joel Schumacher. And knowing Andrew Lloyd Webber as I do, he is pro- Schumacher is probably the best fit he could have gotten to adapt, fan- adopt one of his movies. It's too bad Joel Schumacher wasn't doing well enough to adapt Cats. I think that would have worked out way better. Or way worse, depending on your point of view. But, um, yeah, the Phantom, I, Phantom of the Opera is a guilty pleasure for me just because I think it's a decent... Um, I just I love that show enough that the movie is a fairly decent facsimile of the show. The movie's not great, but, I mean, there's a great story Mini Driver told on Twitter after his death where uh, on the set of Phantom of the Opera, she overheard an actress complaining to Schumacher that uh, Driver was was going too over the top. And Schumacher's like, there's no such thing as over the top. Um, uh, let me pull up the what she said. Um, it's a great quote. And uh, it made me think, um, do you know what set you're on? You're on the set of uh, a Joel Schumacher movie. And you're complaining about somebody being over the top? <laughs> um, so yeah, let me pull up a couple days ago. It would have been the 22nd. Here we go. Um, most hilarious director I ever worked with. Once on set, uh, complained with, an, with her in earshot how dreadfully over the top I was. Would she, she admit she was? I mean, she's playing a diva. She's playing a literal opera diva. So why not be over the top? Uh, and Joel barely looked up from his New York Times and said, Oh, honey, no one ever paid to see under the top. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's such a choice line. Oh, I love it. And that's the thing is that Schumacher has garnered a lot of um, respect from other actors because... 
Uh, for those who don't, for those who remember the movie The Number Twenty Three, that was his follow up to Phantom. Yes, The Number Twenty Three, the really dark turn for Jim Carrey as a thriller, was directed by Joel Schumacher. Uh, everything else after that was kind of, um, kind of just um, stuff I'd never heard of. Something called Blood Creek, which he star, which he, which featured Michael Fass, an early performance by Michael Fassbender. Uh, Fassbender being another actor who had very good things to say about Joel Schumacher. Um, something called Twelve, um, based on a novel of the same name, follows a young drug, drug dealer, features 50 Cent in it. Oh, Lord. Um, and then his last movie was 2011's Trespass, which, was, which reunited him with Nicolas Cage and featured uh, Nicole Kidman. And it was also Ben Mendelsohn. Interesting, uh, but it's a it's apparently a ransom uh, a hostage situation gone wrong. Uh, never heard of it. Never saw it. Uh, his last real directing gig was in 2013. He directed two episodes of the House of Cards, specifically chapters five and six. So if you've watched House of Cards and you know the chapters I'm talking about, those were directed by Joel Schumacher. Uh, he also directed a bunch of music videos. Dude directed music videos for In Excess. He directed the Kiss from a Rose music video by Seal. And he even went on to do, um, uh, what was it? Uh, where is it? Um, he did Bush Letting the Cable Sleep. He did a music video, one of the music videos by, um, where was it? Uh, Scars on Broadway, whoever they are. The end is the beginning of the end from the Smashing Pumpkins. Um, He directed a Lenny Kravitz music video, something for the Killing Floor, the Star Baby music video. For those who know that uh, that that band, Uh, so he's he's directed music videos, TV, um, movies. He's been directing since the eighty, since the since nineteen seventy eight, and it's been hit or miss. I think the thing that you notice with his style is he has a tendency for the melodramatic and the flamboyant not and even outside of the batman stuff like uh here's a here's a tendency for melodrama more than drama like saint elmo's fire is a coming of age melodrama it's not very serious it's very campy he has a tendency towards camp and um a lot of you know some of that may you may uh uh attest to him being gay being a gay production designer, uh, he actively admitted his first gay relationship was at 15, which actually lasted two years. And he openly admitted that during the AIDS crisis, he would get himself tested all the time because of how promiscuous he was. He was he was he was worried to contract it like all of his friends were, so he would constantly get himself tested in case he ended up catching it. Um, well, contracting it, not catching it. Um, but he also was never married, so he's been, uh, he may have had relationships there, they don't really go into it on his wiki, but, um, he's been, you know, he'd never settled down at any point, and, uh, he seemed to, you know, once again, he seemed to be a consummate professional who garnered a lot of respect from his actors, Jim Carrey and Matthew McConaughey, both, um, you know, praised him for allowing them to really, uh, push their careers, like Carrie was still being the wacky uh form you know wacky character from um 
from uh, uh, In Living Color. And yeah, that's kind of his manic comedy. And then in, it was, and while he had some of that in Batman Forever, Carrie um, had was able to be more serious in that as well. If you remember, like before he became full Riddler, he was still a fairly, you know, he was playing it fairly seriously actually. And he probably, and of course, he he and Schumacher returned, you know, returned um, to work together in the number twenty three. So he's had this. He had nothing but nice things to say about Schumacher and McConaughey before um, a time to kill. He would. What was the stuff he was uh, doing? Uh, let me see. Matthew McConaughey um, filmography. Uh, that was ninety. Five, ninety-six. Before before Time to Kill, uh, his biggest thing—he was dazed and confused. Uh, Angels in the Outfield, and then Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Next Generation, and Boys on the Side uh, as Officer Abraham Lincoln. So he never really um, had big roles until Joel Schumacher decided to take a chance on him. Uh, as the lead in the time to kill, and honestly, that's pr- and it's after that that he finally gets these major roles: Contact, Amistad, uh, Ed TV, U U five seventy one, and then he goes on to his uh, rom com era with the Wedding Planner and How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. But his career may have started with um, Dazed and Confused as like that's his first real major uh, role, but it wasn't until Schumacher decided to say, "Hey, you be will you be the you know I think you'll be the lead in my movie. You you be the good fit for the lead in my movie." That he really you know skyrocketed. So McConaughey oh you know thanked um, Schumacher for his career essentially um, when when it was announced that he passed away. Um, but yeah, so but yeah, I think the thing that you see from his. Uh, from his filmography is that one thing is that if you pull up the Metacritic for it, like it's mostly yellows. That's a lot of yellows. And then a good chunk of red, not a lot of greens, not a lot of greens for him. His biggest, um, critical hits were the client lost boys and car wash. His highest rated movie that he, um, that he, that he had a hand in direct and creating was car wash. um, and then everything else is like in the 50s and 40s. St. Elmo's Fire is 35, you know, a lot of 20s and teens, 20s and 30s with a couple of teens. Apparently, uh, people hated 8mm. Uh, it's a 19 on Metacritic. Um, but audiences seem to like him a lot more. 8.8 audience score on Femme of the Opera. I think that's the highest. It's tied with the Lost Boys. For the highest rating uh, on Metacritic by the audience, uh, people enjoyed Falling Down, Saint Elmo's Fire, The Client, uh, the Batman movies, uh, at least Batman Forever, A Time to Kill, Tigerland. People liked Bad Company. People liked Phone Booth. People liked. Um, they, some people liked the number twenty three even. <laughs> so his some of his smaller stuff, and that's the thing. He wasn't always big. Things like his biggest stuff was essentially Saint Elmo's Fire and the Lost Boys, then the Batman movies and the Grisham movies. Then he kind of was pretty, you know, under the radar until um, Phantom of the Opera 
kind of skyrocket him into like the big spotlight again. And then after that, it's just a lot of lower budget movies. He was a fairly low budget director. Um, and like, even when he was a writer, one of back when he was a screenwriter, he really wanted to do the black, what would he, what did he call it? The black version of gone with the wind. That's the other thing that not a lot of people know. He got a lot of his start in movies about black music and black characters. Specifically, Sparkle was inspired by Donna, Donna, Diana Summer and the Pre- and the Supreme. No, Diana Ross and the Supremes. Donna, I'm thinking of Donna Summer for some reason, but um, yeah, Diana Ross and the Supremes. Um, Car Wash is, is a lot of uh, '70s disco and black culture featuring that you know majority black cast. The Wiz, you know. The black the black uh, version of um, of Wizard of Oz, and then DC Cab was another one he wrote. You know, he wrote and direct directed, and that featured a predominantly black cast. Although it was a mixed cast featuring like um, a young uh, Gary Busey in there as well <laughs> as one of the cab drivers, uh, but starring um, Mr. T, who admitted he hated the movie and he only did it for the paycheck, <laughs> but. Um, his early career as a as a screenwriter and early director featured a lot of black casts and black characters, but by the time he became a big name, it was much. It, he never really worked with black actors uh, again, like predominantly. It was mostly white actors, and which I find very interesting. That and he started out. He was you know much more. He, a lot of his stuff was featuring black characters. And then once he kind of made it big, he never really returned to that. And I find that interesting. Like he admit, like he, like one of his early pat, like let me pull up the, uh, pull up the line. He, his original plan for Sparkle was to be a black Gone with the Wind. Uh, so on the epic scale of Gone with the Wind, but made for a black audience. And he had to tone it back. I have no idea if Sparkle's any good. I know there was a remake, and I hear that one's awful. I have no idea if the 74 version is any good. But he had a he admitted to having a fascination with Jesse Jackson, Angela Davis, Tammy Terrell, and Diana Ross. So, I mean, he had this, you know, at least affinity for black culture in the 70s that was a f- completely lost... By the eight by the eighties, and I'm wondering what happened there. They never really go into it, and I'm curious about all that, especially when we talk about things nowadays. The fact that Schumacher was really cool with writing about black characters and writing about black, you know, writing these movies that are fairly, you know, uh, and you know, not integral, but like a, a a major part of a lot of black culture, especially in the seventies, and then he just goes off and makes a bunch of white movies. <laughs> Uh, so I'm wondering about all that, like, is it, like, I don't know, I don't know what what to say about that, but yeah, I mean, here's the guy who wrote the screenplay for The Wiz, and then he goes on to make freaking St. Elmo's Fire, and the Batman movies, and Phantom of the Opera, like, what a crazy trajectory, and I think people bash him too much, I think people... I think people don't see him in the right light. I think people are so focused on like, like uh, the craft, the artistry of filmmaking that 
They don't allow themselves to have fun. It's like what Mini Driver said. No one pays for Under the Top. <laughs> Shoot, I mean, I just watched Under the Top performances in Eurovision. Yeah, I don't want to pay for that. Nah, nobody wants to watch Under the Top. And if, if, if nothing else, Over the Top gets your attention. People still are talking about cats uh, almost, uh, you know, half a year later because of how crazy Over the Top insane it was. And yeah... Nobody would talk about it otherwise if it was under the top. If it was it was it was banal and, you know, just meh, nobody would talk about have a reason to talk about it. Big big that like think you know, to quote another um fairly flamboyant movie, uh Cats Don't Dance, they people like it big, they like it loud. Big and loud. <laughs> um I think people are too quick to punch down on Joel Schumacher as being campy. And I'm at the age now where camp doesn't bother me. Well, man, not age, but I'm at the point now where just because it's campy doesn't mean it's bad. I think people... Not not, not everything campy is good, but allowing for that melodrama, that over-the-top kind of nature that that's that sort of farce it brings a sort of farcical energy to a lot of stuff and sometimes that can be great in the right you know and joel schumacher um i think has a way of bringing that melodramatic energy to a lot of his his movies and i mean he was good enough to direct two john grisham movies (laughs) in terms of that in terms of the melodrama and I i think he's got a style that works for the most part you know i still have a like i said i still enjoy phantom of the opera as a campy hot mess (laughs) and um you know i think his time as a designer also helped to give him a good visual flair so he had a good vision he had good visuals as a director even if it didn't always work so so yeah like people claim that he get you know he made um Batman and Batman and all that gay or because you know he's gay but if you watch Batman forever he doesn't there's not a lot of there's you know there's not a lot of homoeroticism in that whereas Batman and Robin he's pushing the camp so much that people confuse that with with being gay and i think that because so many comic book dorks are you know straight dudes who don't have a lot who don't really have a lot of um interactions with gay people and campiness and a lot of that you know style or humor that it threw them off that it's like this is gay no this is just camp like the 60s was camp and then yeah there's the stuff there they're just pushing the camp like the nipples and the butt like it's spandex. Like it's of course it's superhero. Like superheroes always wear f- tight, form-fitting spandex. So like, w- it's just pushing it even further. You know, it's just camp, 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 camp. And even he admits that he went too far because they all the studio was concerned with was give us something we can sell toys for. And it's like. And so he decided to push it as far as he could go, and it's, then he realized, like Icarus, he too flew too close to the campy sun. <laughs> but um, I think the more often than not, 
instead of the camp, you see the melodrama. He's great at melodrama with uh, the client and the time to kill being fairly over the top in terms of performances, like really like iconic performances because they're so like big. And even in subtler things, like the number 23, Jim Carrey is giving a subtler performance, but the energy is always kind of there. And I think you see that in Phone Booth from what I've heard, because there's a lot of that tension, that energy there. And I think that's kind of what Schumacher's appeal is. He wasn't able to keep that going for every movie, but he had a lot of that tense sort of melodramatic energy that even if the performances weren't big, the energy was always there. I still need to see that original Flatliners, but I think that's kind of what worked about that too, was that here's this thing of these doctors, you know, getting high off of dying and coming back to life, and then it comes back to bite them in the ass. Um, falling down. Michael Douglas is going over the top as this guy f- slowly losing his sanity and his and his um his patience with uh, with life in Los Angeles. So, um, I don't think he's yeah you know, he's not clearly not a perfect director by any means. I don't think any director is perfect, but um, but he has a, he had a style that worked and it, it worked best when he was allowed to really. Go, go that you know, have that, have at it, and be crazy, and that's what people liked about him most. That's what they liked about the Lost Boys. That's what they liked about Phantom of the Opera. That's what they liked about Saint Elmo's Fire. The fact that they just, it, you, you knew when you were watching a Schumacher movie because it was just campy as hell and melodramatic, and, and you never, and you never let, you were never bored. For the most part, by it. I don't know about his later works. I think some of those you got bored. That work could be boring. But in the high in the heyday of Schumacher, you were never bored by his movies, and and, it, and I did not realize he was eighty years old. He was going to be turning eighty one in a couple of months, and then last year um, he developed cancer. They didn't specify like what kind of cancer, but just he had developed cancer and he finally lost to it. And you know what? I think I think I'm happy that we had a Joel Schumacher. I not, I mean I like a lot of his movies, but the the landscape of film would not be the same if not for his his camp, his flair, his style, you know. You, whether you it doesn't matter if you liked it or even it was just the fact that he was willing to bring that kind of energy to his films and, and the fact that he that and the fact that he garnered the respect of so many actors that he worked with that they that they enjoyed working with him even if the movies didn't do great these like he he you know Jim Carrey returned to work with him Nicolas Cage returned to work with him they would want to return to work with this guy because they liked working with him. And I think that says a lot. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry that he passed away, but uh, we had, he had a f- long, fulfilling life, it seemed like. And he hasn't really been, you know, he hasn't, he's been fairly, fairly, you know, private since uh, 2013. That's the, that's the last we really heard from him, is those two episodes of House of Cards. And uh, he, you know, settled down, probably just did his own thing. He officially retired from um, the industry in 2017, so 
he was probably producing stuff here and there, but yeah, Schumacher, there, there really is not, you know, there probably won't be another guy quite like him. And he definitely left his mark on the industry and I'm glad we had him. So thank you, Mr. Schumacher. And, uh, I do plan on trying on checking out some of your stuff when I have the chance. And, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad we had you for when we did. All right, uh, that all about does it for this week's episode, which means it is time for the plugs. Yeah, another Bambi moment there. <laughs> Go from these deep, reflective uh, discussion to, uh, hey, everybody, it's time to plug the show. <laughs> uh, anyway, um... If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by whitelisting us on your ad blocker and favoring us on your web browser. You can also check out all of our other fine programming there. You've got my shows, Living in the Stacks, which we are trying to get those microfiches together. It's just harder to, you know, do things in this, you know, gestures at everything that we're dealing with. And, um... You can all, but you can also check out uh, Dungeons and Dragon types every two weeks. No one, no new episode this week, I don't think. But um, yeah, we're we're those those are still coming out every couple of weeks, and uh, we're having a lot of fun over on that end. And then you can also check out all of Donna's stuff over at the Snarkcast. Uh, Once more with feeling beyond the cabin in the woods. Um, the family business, and if you yourself are a podcaster and would like to join our fledging little family, you can do so by white, uh, by sending us any inquiries to gumbicatnetworks at gmail.com. That's G-U-M-B-I-E cat, uh, for, taken from T.S. Eliot's book of Jellicle Cats. Um, but yeah, if you want to send any, send an answer info at gumbicatnetworks at gmail.com and we'll get back to you and see if you're a good fit. Uh, you can also find this show on your various podcast providers, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, iHeartMedia. And if we're not on your podcast provider, let us know so we can add ourselves to it. And then be sure to leave a five-star rating and review. Let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. You can also le- you can also um, follow the show on social media. We're at Facebook.com slash PopcornJunkie, Twitter.com at CornJunkiePod. We're on, I'm on Letterboxd at CornJunkiePod as well, Letterboxd. Uh, that's where I leave, leave all the written reviews uh, in the lead-up to an, a new episode. So if you want to know what I'm watching in terms of movies, you can check me out there. Uh, I'm not as active on Instagram or Stardust anymore, sadly, but I'm hoping to fix that. Um, Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast and, letter, and uh, Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. And, uh, and if you want to say anything else to me, you can do so at the email, popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to support the show like my buddy Mar does... Uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash popcorn junkie. There you'll have access to all 10 episodes each of Make a Better Movie and Munch Along, which was my riffing uh, co- uh, commentary track. Uh, if you want to bring those back, you can donate as little as $1 a month, and uh, I'll do riff, riff along tracks to uh, movies that you want to watch uh, me riff to. Um, you can also, and I think I'm thinking of bringing back Make a Better Movie. And there, if there's a slow week, I'll try to do Make a Better Movie, but uh, only if it comes from a Patreon suggestion. So if you want to, if you want to suggest some movie for me to make better for an episode, 
Uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash popcornjunkie for as little as $1 a month. And then, of course, you can suggest content like Mar has been doing. Um, if there's something you would love to see me, hear me review, see me review. Uh, we're not there yet. Um, if you want to hear me review something either good or bad or whatever, if you want to hear my thoughts on a thing, you can send, you know, support the show on Patreon and suggest it to me. Um, only one at a time per patron. And then once it's done, I can do the next thing. But I would love to, you know, get suggestions for things to watch besides, you know, what's going on. Um, I found something interesting, too, this week. Because enough theaters had been reopening, there is, a, in fact, a box office uh, report. Uh, not, I won't do the full uh, thing, but there was, in fact, a box office uh, Not a big one, but a big uh, enough to actually report... On this week, um, in terms of like, uh, like the actual recordings of box office stuff, um, ah, uh, box office mojo doesn't have the thing. Ah, apparently the number one movie, uh, this week in terms of like re- in terms of like being shown in theaters is Jurassic Park. Followed by Jaws because theaters are using the um, using old classics, old classics. I mean, like you know, established classics to entice people to come back to see movies, uh, movies in the theater again. So, Box Office Mojo doesn't recognize it; it's still focusing on the new releases. But, um, but there was enough. Uh, I I swear I saw it in like Variety. Hold on, Jurassic Park, twenty twenty. Uh, Dominion. Here we go. Deadline.com. Jurassic Park rose to number one again. At uh, weekend box office, twenty-seven years after its original release. Um, Jaws. Jaws. Jaws was. Uh, this is only like with five hundred thousand dollars we're talking about, not major money, not millions, but like enough people are going to theaters to see Jurassic Park and Jaws again. Uh, a lot of them are drive-throughs, actually. Um, some of them are drive-throughs. There's a there's a chunk of them that are that are doing that. So I mean, um, so yeah, theaters they're mainly they're mainly trying to entice people back with uh, classics. There are also thoughts of um, Wonder Woman. Uh, Back to the Future, Get Out, The Matrix. Um, right now, there's about... There, Texas has the most theaters open with 82. Ohio has 56. But these could be drive... These are a mix of both um, traditional I- indoor theaters and drive-ins. So there could be a bunch of drive-ins that they're, that they're talking about. Um, Florida, 39. Minnesota, 39. Indiana, 37. Pennsylvania, 34. Kansas, 28. Tennessee, 28. And Wisconsin, 26. So uh, the weekend box office, number one is Jurassic Park. Number two is Jaws. Number three is Blumhouse's The Invisible Man. Then Trolls World Tour. Then The Hunt. Then Back to the Future. Then Followed. Then E.T. back in theaters. Then Jumanji in the next level. And then The Goonies. The Goonies is back in theaters at the top, t- in the t- in, at number 10. At 100 theaters. 170 theaters. Uh, bringing in $110,000. So, I mean, hey, if you've got a local drive-in, go support them. 
why the heck now's the perfect time? Because you're not directly interacting with too many people. You have your own little box to conceal yourself in. I have to go see if there's any drive, what the drive-thrus near me are showing and see if I can do that one night. But, uh, yeah, um, that was a fun thing I wanted to add in last minute. So, yeah, support the show on Patreon. Follow us on social media. Send, send anything else to the email. That does it for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And even if it takes a while, I can't wait to go back to theaters. As long as I never have to sit through crap like Eurovision again. Who am I kidding? Of course I'm going to have to sit through that crap in theaters. I'll have to pay for it next time. Never mind. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. And as, we, as we've been saying for the last couple of weeks, for today and tomorrow, now and forever, Black Lives Matter and trans rights are human rights. <laughs>